The following audio is from The House in Rogers, Arkansas. More information about The House Church can be found at www.welcometothehouse.com. But what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to you about the future. How many would find it beneficial if someone could, if I could tell you where the stock market would be in three months? I mean, if I could guarantee you and you would be convinced what's going to happen in three months, six months, nine months, or a year, you would go out, I mean, you know, you would position your money, you would borrow money, and you would take advantage of a knowledge of the future. Well, how many know the Bible gives us such knowledge? The Bible talks about the future. I just finished a series in our church called The Final Chapter, Living in the Last Days. And you and I do live in the latter part of the last days. The focal point of the last days is the second coming of Christ where Jesus would literally come to this earth. But this morning I want to pause a moment and look with you at the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, it's a book written by John the Beloved, John the Apostle. He was being persecuted for Christ. He was a martyr in the Isle of Patmos. And God, uh, Jesus appeared to him in a series of symbolic visions. And he should really be able to play the guitar good all these gadgets up here. What do you think? <laughs> Jesus appeared to John and he gave him visions, pictures of the future. There's things like, for example, in America today, what's in our election, it almost seems folk, Mrs. Clinton is poised on globalism, uh, a, a, a one world coming together. Uh, Trump has stirred populism, nationalism, borders, uh, immigration boundaries and controls. Well, how many know globalism fits right into the book of Revelation about a one world government that the world will experience one day? One day in this one world government, there's going to arise someone called the Antichrist. The Antichrist will arise when the problems of the, when the world is collapsing, when we don't have enough money to take care of all those too big to fail, a one world leader will emerge on the scene. The Bible says if you don't have the, uh, his mark, you'll not be able to buy or sell. But the Bible doesn't leave us in that predicament. The Bible talks about the second coming of Christ. It talks about the judgment day. Uh, the book of Revelation speaks of the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. So how many know all this is what's coming in the future and all of it should contextualize our lives? If, if I could guarantee you that, for example, just like Oklahoma got a little earthquake, I think you probably felt it up here the other day. Well, if I could tell you that there was going to be a 7.0 earthquake on the day before you bought your house in Rogers or in Oklahoma, how many know you'd tell the realtor, hold off on that. I don't, I don't want to buy that house until after the earthquake. Well, as we look towards the future, what's going to happen, the Bible tells us how to live. Now, this book of Revelation, it was written, uh, it was written to seven churches. And if you know anything of your geography, you know in the Mediterranean world, I just picture that this is the Mediterranean. Here's Israel right over here. And here is modern-day Turkey. Here's Italy over here. Well, in modern-day Turkey, that's where these seven churches were, seven literal churches in the book of Revelation. And I suggest to you there's no better way to prepare to live in the last days than listen to what Jesus said to churches that were, uh, that were operating in that era. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at three commendations to these churches. Three things where Jesus patted them on the back and said, you're doing a great, great job. And then I'll look at three things where Jesus said, hey, here's a correction you need to make. 
My message this morning is geared towards uh, uh, believers and believers who are endeavoring to live in a way that pleases God. How I many know there's only one life to live? We want to leave it, live it effectively, pleasing the Lord. So look with me in the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm going to start in Revelation chapter 2, and what I want to begin with is what's called the commendation. Now, if you, look in, if you look in these churches, virtually all of the messages are the same. The first address to the church, Jesus in some way describes himself. And then he'll commend most of the churches, something they're doing good. Then he'll correct or he'll rebuke them for where they're in error. And then he'll give them a promise of anticipation in the future. So let's kind of pick as we go here. Let's look at the church in Pergamum, Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. We're talking about the commendation. And here's my purpose this morning, quite simply. I'm going to encourage you to imitate their virtues and to learn from their mistakes. Imitate what they were doing right. Learn from what they were doing wrong because how many want to, be, how many want to receive the promises of God for our life? Yeah, every one of us here today. So let's begin with this first virtue about loyalty to Christ in a place called Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Now an interesting description, Satan's throne, it literally means where Satan is the supreme ruler. So over this city, unlike the other cities, he said, Satan's got a grip on this place. In the city of Philadelphia, he, he described Philadelphia as having a synagogue of Satan. In that city, the Jews were particularly hostile towards Christianity and they were being used as instruments of persecution. But this phrase, I know you dwell where Satan's throne is, but listen to this. You hold fast my name and you didn't deny the faith. You hold fast my name, you didn't deny the faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, my prayer is that we're able to live out our lives in a peaceful existence here in America. My prayer is we don't know persecution. But how many know Christians around the world today are literally losing their lives for Christ? Yeah. We have a Christian ministry that we support, our church, the underground church. It's a former Muslim. He was, he was lived in the Middle East. He was a Muslim priest. Somebody gave him a Bible. Now, how many know there's power in the Word of God? That's why in your missions movement, you always want to be giving Bibles away. I was saved. I celebrated my spiritual birthday just a few days ago. It was August 15, 1976. I gave my heart to Christ in a Navy boot camp. I was raised in a Methodist church, but it didn't take. But at, at, a, at a time in my life, I was at a, a, at a spiritual crossroads. I was going to run from my problems. A Gideon gave me a New Testament when I got ready to get on the plane. I began to read it, and it changed my life. Well, someone gave a Bible to this Muslim priest. He began to read it. He becomes a Christian. This poor guy has been shot. I mean, he's right in the middle of what's going on in ISIS, in Turkey, the underground church. But yet he goes there. He lives there. He's seen people killed. He's, raised little, he's raising kids whose parents have been killed simply because they're a Christian. I pray to God that never happens in America today, but I want to tell you, it is growing increasingly hard to be a Christian in America. How many will agree with that? He said, I know where you live, where Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, this city, Pergamum, it was a wealthy city, but it was a wicked city filled with pagan cults, and it was not easy to be a Christian. There were social pressures, religious pressures, and political pressures. 
And this pagan temple, there was one temple archaeologists have found, and this temple was dedicated to a god of healing, and it was a picture of a serpent on the door. That was their logo. It was a snake, and it was a place to go for healing. There were three temples that were there built by Roman emperors. And you were supposed to worship these emperors. These emperors, you know, when the early Christians would say, Jesus is Lord, well, that was trouble in the Roman church because Caesar was supposed to be Lord. So this was a place, what I want you to see is that they're holding fast. And the first attribute is that they're loyal to Christ in a difficult place. Satan was using a pagan culture to make it hard to be a Christian. And what Scripture exhorts is, hold fast to what you're doing. And Jesus is patting them on the back because they're living in the midst of this. Now, I want to suggest to you, in each one of these churches we're going to look at, we're going to try to find a lesson that we can learn and apply. I'm a big believer that the Bible is not just a historical document that we go to for doctrine, truth, and commandments, but the Bible is relevant. You can put it into practice today. And here's an overwhelming lesson here. This first lesson is it's not easy living in the, in the Christian culture today, but Jesus is proud of us when we do. How, how many students do we have here? Let me raise your hand to me. If you're a student, college or high school. Boy, give them a big hand today. I just applaud you for being in church today. It is, it's great, listen, to have a church that's able to appeal to students, young and old alike. But you students, as you're, particularly as you go in college and if you're in a secular high school, you're going to be taught things that are in total opposition to the Bible. You're going to be mocked in your science classes when you say you believe that God created the heavens and the earth. You'll be mocked. You'll be made fun of. As you take your psychology classes, you'll, it, it, is a, it is a man-centered psychology and their entire understanding they'll present to you has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with sin, nothing to do with redemption. There's just, we live in an antagonistic world and it's becoming hostile to the Christian. How many know Christians have been fired for their Facebook posts simply because they stood for traditional marriage? They were not gay bashing. They were not doing anything but simply saying, I believe that God created us in His image and He created us male and female and that's where God sanctified marriage in 224 and some Christians are losing their jobs. Now listen, I don't want you to lose your job. I want you to be, as Jesus said, to be wise in the world. But also, I want to tell you, don't be afraid to be a Christian as the world grows more difficult. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. Let me give you another one. Chapter 2, verse 19, the church in Thyatira. And again, we're just going to look at, 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 at a commendation from three different churches. Revelation 2, 19, and this uh, uh, attribute to imitate is simply this. It's serving the Lord in a place called Thyatira. Serving the Lord in a place called Thyatira. How many know some people go to church and that's it? Some people go to church and read their Bible, and that's a little better. How I many know? But some people go to church, they read their Bibles, and they find a way to serve the Lord in their community. They are sharing their faith. They are helping the poor in the name of Christ. They're leading a Bible study. They're teaching kids. They're helping homeless people. But what they're doing is they do it in the name of Christ. Mother Teresa, if you followed her, she was recently being canonized or, 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 or given sainthood in the Catholic Church because of her great care for the poor on the streets of Calcutta. It's interesting as you see even this woman who was alive in the early part of my life and this woman, you'd see her pictures and she epitomized someone who loved and cared for poor and needy people. Yet, the, yet those in, in the political left, the liberals would hate her because she would stand for life rather than stand for abortion. 
So even someone that showed us how to live the Christian life and caring for the poor, she was serving the Lord as an example to us. Notice Revelation 2.19. It says, I know your works. Can you say that with me? I know your works. What does this mean? It means Jesus sees what I do. <laughs> that could be good or bad. <laughs> Jesus sees what I do. This works is not just my actions, but He knows my behavior. He knows the lifestyle that I live. And the Scripture is very clear on this. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And now listen to this. I know your latter works exceed your first. Now think about that. What Jesus is saying, He's patting them on the back. I know the life you're living for me, and I'm proud of you. And here's what Jesus sees. He sees that you are doing... Well, listen, another translation says it this way. It says, I know you're doing more now than you did when you first believed in me. And this is something that I hope will capture each one of us, is that we deliberately make the move from just someone that enjoys God's blessing, someone that might come to church out of, you know, to learn or even an obligation or tradition, to someone who is an instrument in God's hands that He might use your life to make a difference in this world. This is a big, big point. Jesus expects us to grow spiritually and become mature and be fruitful. Jesus said in John 15 verse 8, when you produce, say it with me, much fruit, you are my true disciples. Now that's not lemons and oranges, but it's internal things like our Christian character, but it's also what we do with our life. Whether it's Mother Teresa helping the poor, uh, whether it's serving. I notice people serving children in nurseries today. I've, uh, your pastor talked to me about your outreach ministries that you do. You had a big outreach Sunday not too long ago. These are things that the Lord applauds you about, and these are things that we should do more and more. And I want to encourage you, listen, there's no better place to be able to find an outlet for serving the Lord than in the local church. Listen, I'm a local church person through and through. It's, it's because as I said earlier, you cannot do an honest reading of the New Testament without an understanding of local church. People were connected there. You'll find that there's a synergy in your service of the Lord. But anyway, this was the second big thing that Jesus talked about is He applauded them because they served the Lord. How many know we're supposed to grow up and become more spiritually mature? You know, when you have kids, it's, they're kind of cute. Uh, Facebook is pretty cool for that. Uh, these young ladies in our church, they're posting pictures of their babies, and you're just going to kind of reach out and hug them, and they say, oh, my baby today had four dirty diapers, and they're just as excited as they can be. And, 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 and listen, I could barely handle my kids' dirty diapers. Uh, I don't, I don't want to see somebody else's. Well, let me know, that's kind of funny when that kid is little. Um, my kids are here today. Rebecca, my daughter, she's 16, and my son John and his wife, they're 28. Well, how many know if they were still behaving like they were when they were kids, something would be wrong? Yeah. How many know when a kid's, you know, four and you tell them to make their bed, you kind of laugh the way that bed looks? But how many know if they're 24 and they still don't make their bed, something's wrong? You know, both my kids, they, 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 they're responsible, they're mature. They were working in their teenage years. They were learning to enter into the work, into the, the work environment. Well, guess what? If they're 28 and living at home and still waiting on an allowance, yeah. I mean, there's something's wrong with that picture. And just as they have grown up naturally, God wants us to grow up spiritually and produce fruit as we serve Him. So that's the second accolade, is serving the Lord. Here's another one, Revelation chapter 3. It's in a church called Sardis. 
And this one was simply living a pure life in Sardis. Now remember the first thing Jesus applauded them for, you're loyal to me when it's hard to be a Christian. The second thing is he applauded them because of their, the works they were doing, they were serving him. And now I want you to see Jesus is applauding them because of the lifestyle they were living. They were living a righteous and a pure life. Now listen with this one, Revelation 3, 4. You, you still have a few names in Sardis. Say this with me. People who have not soiled their garments. Now this, is, this didn't mean that they didn't have washing machines back then. And they'll walk with me in white for they are worthy. How many want God to look at you one day and say, you're worthy? Yeah, sure, all of us. The white garments are symbolic of righteousness and purity. And what Jesus is saying, there are people in this church that I'm applauding today because you have lived pure lives as Christians. And your, your, your clothes that you wear are a metaphor for Christ-like behavior. Can I tell you, friends, it matters how we live today. It doesn't matter any, any longer in the world. I watched a little bit of the Olympics, and some of them, when I was watching them, I thought, do they even have clothes on? I mean, I mean we live in a world today where immodesty is normal. When my wife used to try to buy bathing suits for, for my girls, I would say, is that the best you could do? <laughs> now look, I didn't want them to wear uh, what the, in the Muslim ban in Europe, burkinis, you know how the Muslim... I didn't want them to wear a burkini. But on the flip side, you know, it needed to be more than an eye patch. <laughs> and my wife would tell me, I can't find anything. This is the best I could do in four stores. So what do I mean by that? We live in a world today that has just basically dropped all its moral boundaries. And the Bible espouses modesty. So guess what? When I become a Christian, I, listen, I was very worldly before I came to Christ, but when I became a Christian, things started changing. I mean, no, when you become a Christian, your dress, if you were immodest, you should become modest. Not because you're trying to fit a church culture or the, or, 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 or the church has a code how long your dress has to be, but from our hearts that we want to live a pure life. How many know our Facebook posts should change when we become Christians? I mean, Facebook, Twitter, they can be evil. They can be successful. People say things in social media that they would never say to your face. Well, how many know, as a Christian, I, I don't just have to preach every time I'm on Facebook, but yet my, my t the tenor of my, of my words should change. How many know, if I'm going to truly be a Christian, uh, I, I shouldn't laugh at vulgar jokes that I used to laugh at. I shouldn't make the vulgar comments that I used to. I, I no longer pass around the little soft porn on my phone. Or, or, something happens, and what Jesus is saying, I applaud the church because their garments are pure, because people are living pure and righteous lives. Come on, give the Lord a good, a good hand today. Now let's, let's, let's kind of do the flip side. We're doing like an airplane. There were three positives, and now there's three things that we want to learn from. Uh, these were rebukes, these were mistakes they made. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, and this first one is sexual immorality in a place called Thyatira. Revelation 2.20, Jesus is saying this, and imagine now, when Jesus would write this letter, he wrote it to the angel or the angelos or the messenger of the church, which we might call the lead pastor to the church here in Rogers, or in this case, the church in Thyatira. But Jesus said this, I have this against you. 
Now, again, we either want to want Jesus to applaud us or Jesus to correct us. How many would much rather have Jesus applaud you? Yeah, yeah me too. Well, Jesus said, hey, here's something that I see. Woman Jezebel. In the Old Testament, oh, Jezebel was married to Ahab. Uh, Ahab was 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 a an Israelite king, but he was easily influenced, and she influenced him to be an idol worshiper. So there's this gal. Her name is Jezebel, and she calls herself a prophetess. And a prophetess is one who claims their teaching are an is an authentic message from God, but it's not. Now, how many know that same Jezebel, I don't care if they're a charismatic preacher, a man or a woman, how many know the false teacher is out there today? The false teacher is in churches, the false teacher... Listen, there have been great men in evangelical churches that we would call brothers in Christ that, 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 that lost John 14, 6 when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And embrace what the world calls universalism, which means there's many ways up the mountain. Uh, God would never send anyone to hell. And before you know it, they no longer teach what the Bible says about heaven and hell and salvation. So false teachers are around us today. Jezebel, but notice what she was doing, two things. She seduced the people to practice sexual immorality. That was the first one. And the second, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, we can't relate to this kind of idolatry, but just like you've got churches all over Rogers, imagine they had foreign temples to foreign gods, and they would sacrifice food. Uh, they would sometimes sacrifice their children to these pagan gods. So what was happening in this church is the worldly ways were coming into the church, and they weren't doing anything about it. Here's what I try to do as a pastor. As I said, I've been a pastor 35 years, and I try to have a church where we love everyone where everyone is welcome. I don't care how bad your life is, how broken you are, we want you to be welcome. But we also want to have a church that teaches the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. It's not my job to beat you up or condemn you, but it is my job to say God has boundaries for us to live within. Listen, we have, we, we, uh, I, we have welcomed people in our church with AIDS. I can remember loving them, baptizing them. We welcome people in our church. We have child molesters in our church. Now, they don't work in the nursery. <laughs> we screen them, but we'll help them be restored and help them find a place where they can still have some value. You know, serial, serial marriages, serial adultery, just go down the list. Whatever it is, how many of the church should have open arms? Listen, I may believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, but I openly say, listen, if you're in the homosexual lifestyle, you're welcome in our church. But I'll tell you the truth, just like I would tell a young person who's in fornication, come on, or a married person who's in adultery, I'll tell you the truth, just like the Bible says, is that God ordained the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. He placed it in the context of a lifelong monogamous marriage, and He said it's a good thing. And all the married people said? Amen. <laughs> but He also put some boundaries around it where, that our culture has tried to destroy. Now stay with me today. It's almost like, well, you saw this guy, what's his name, uh, Wiener, married to Huma, uh, Mrs. Clinton's uh, chief of staff, uh, caught the second time sexting. He's in bed and his little kid is with him. So, and, and now, and I was reading this article on a conservative website about this guy, destroying his marriage, destroying his life, and guess what? It's these, what we would call soft porn images are all over a conservative website trying to pull you into the trap. 
That's the world we live in today. We live in an immoral world, and God calls us to be moral people. Our own government has made laws that basically uh, makes it legal for things that used to be called sinful in America and even in the Bible. And it's troubling. Somehow we, we have to speak the truth in love as the church. And this is what they had failed to do. They were embracing this, her immorality and her idolatry. And it's very strong. Jesus said in verse 21, I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her immorality. I'm going to throw her on a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw them in great tribulation unless they repent of their works. So again, these messages of correction are strong messages. How I many know no one wants Jesus to come after you? How I many know we want to be in a place where the Lord says, well done. Give him a big hand today. He is worthy. There's a lesson before I leave her, just like this Jezebel, she was influencing people into the wrong pathway. I want to ask you a question. Who influences you? Who influences you? Who shapes your beliefs? Is it talk radio? Some of it's good, some of it's not. Is it a professor at school? You know, uh, who influences you? And one of the lessons that this church failed to learn is the pastors and the leaders of this church were allowing Jezebel to go through her motions. They were allowing her influence to be there. Who knows why? Because she was influential in the community, because she gave money, whatever the case may be. But the, maybe she was intimidating. But whatever it was, the leadership failed to do its job to protect the people who are called sheep in Scripture. And how many know Jezebel was having a heyday because the wrong person was influencing her? And I want to encourage you today, friends, listen, it's easy to get a podcast, it's easy to read a book, it's easy to listen to someone, but how many know we need people in our lives that, can be, that we can be accountable to, that can cover us, that can help us make sure that we don't get in the wrong pathway. You know when Jesus talked about the last days in Matthew 24, guess what the first thing Jesus said about the last days? He said, don't be deceived. deceived. And you know the problem with deception? is we don't know when we're deceived. Yeah. That's why we need people that can say, hey, are you hanging with Jezebel? You need to cut the cord on that gal because she's no good. Come on, somebody say <laughs> praise the Lord. Let me give you another one, Revelation chapter 3. It's in a city called Sardis, and the phrase I'll use here is backslidden in Sardis. Uh, in Sardis, Jesus, mind you now, he's speaking, and what's the first thing Jesus said? He says, I, I know your works. I know your works, I know the life you're living. And listen to this, he said, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are. Now, why would Jesus write a, a, a letter, or why would he give a vision about dead, peop to dead people? Come on, how many know you don't write letters to dead people? No, he's talking about spiritually dead and spiritually alive. Yeah. Notice what he says now. He says, you better strengthen what remains and is about to die because I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard and do what? Repent. How many know repent is a missing word from the Christian vernacular today? Listen to me on this one. Christians in America today are pressuring pastors and churches to almost be like a politician appealing to a consumer. Because if you don't say what I want to say... I'll go to some other church that will tell me. I don't want to hear about the bad things. I don't want to hear about the negative things. I only want to hear about the good things. Are you with me today? 
This is was the trouble. Jesus said, uh, you better strengthen what remain. You better repent. It's about to die. I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. If you will not wake up, Jesus said, I'm coming like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I will come against you. How many know the last thing you want and I want is for Jesus to come against me? Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. So what does this mean now? What does it mean? He said, uh, one translation says, you seem to be spiritually alive, but you're really dead. You seem to be a faithful believer in me, but in reality, you don't follow me anymore. Now let me just get real just a second if I can. I just took my jacket off. I'll be one of us if I can say that. I preached a lot of sermons in my church probably over 2,000 times, maybe 2,500. I can prepare a sermon. I can walk down the aisle with my Bible. Come on, I can look like a preacher, but I know and God knows if I'm living close to Him. And this is not just for John the preacher. This is for all of us. What's the greatest commandment in all the Bible? What did Jesus say? Yeah. Love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Mm-hmm. Now, the great commandment, isn't it interesting? It's about relationship with God. Right. And isn't it a tragedy in life today? Somehow we dumb religion down to rules. We tell people how long their dress needs to be. Uh, we, uh, we, we define what modesty is. We define spirituality by how many times we come to church, by, by how many times we've read the Bible. How many know all these outward things can be good, but how many know they can, we can, if not careful, we can be modern-day Pharisees, come on, rather than lovers of God? And Jesus said to the Pharisees of His day, Jesus chided them. He said, you're like, you're, you're like a, a whitewashed wall. He said, everything looks great on the inside, but it looks terrible on the inside. When I, when I, when I walked into your building, I thought, man, this is a nice church building. It was engaging, the people were friendly, and and as you said, people went by it all the time and had no idea what was inside. Can I tell you, Jesus knows exactly what's inside of us. And I'm not trying to beat you up and make you feel guilty, but what I am trying to say is, the Lord wants us to have relationship with Him. See, we don't want to just be known by other people that we're Christians. We don't want to have it just going on the outside. Come on, I want to have it going on with Jesus on the inside. I don't want to just pray because uh, I've got a problem or a need. I want to wake up in the morning and the first thing out of my mouth to be, Lord Jesus, good morning. Somewhere between waking up and getting my shower, I'm wandering in that shower waking up like you. I I start saying the Lord's Prayer and I say, Lord, let your kingdom come today. Let your will be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven. See, Lord, I I don't want to just be a Sunday Christian. I'm a Christian seven days a week. And the heart of it is in my relationship with God. I read my Bible every day, not because I have to, but because I want to have relationship with God. I want to read it not because I need the next sermon or the next Facebook to post. I want to read it because, come on, I want to know my Heavenly Father. I want to know His ways and I want to be pleasing to Him. And that's what Jesus said to this church. Jesus said, you look good on the outside, but I know your hearts and I want you to turn and live again spiritually within me. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord this morning. Let me give you one more. Go to Revelation chapter 3. It's the church in Laodicea. And I must confess, this has always been a little confusing to me. 
the church in Laodicea, and I'm going to call this what we're learning here, is that they were an ineffective witness. Again, now we're talking about the corrections. These are things that we, we, we mistakes they made that we don't want to make. Uh, we don't want to be sexually immoral. We want to guard our hearts. We don't want to be backslidden. And in this case, we don't want to be an ineffective witness. We want to be an effective witness for Christ. Stay with me on this one. I think you, you may find this interesting. Revelation 3.15. What did Jesus say again? He said, I know your, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm and not hot or cold, what's it say? I will yeah, spit you out of my mouth. Some translation says I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Now punch your neighbor and say, that can't be good. <laughs> I, I don't know what that means, but when Jesus said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, let me illustrate it this way. Now, there were the nearby, one of the nearby cities was called Hierapolis. And in Hierapolis, they had hot water, just like hot springs. Uh, my wife got this little foot massager deal, and you fill it up with hot water and put some Epsom salt in it. In it. I don't know what it does. It boils around, bubbles around, and it's great for about probably 15 minutes. But then the water becomes lukewarm. Have you ever wanted, uh, tried to run your bathtub and you thought, oh, I just need to relax. I'm just going to take a hot bath and put on a candle and put on some music and just, I need to just rest. Well, unbeknownst to you, they were running the washing machine. Your daughter took a two-hour shower before it and you get ready to get in this hot bathtub and it's not hot, it's lukewarm and you get right out. That was the waters of Heropolis. It was hot and hot, hot is good. The cold waters, there was a nearby town called Colossae, and Colossae had cold waters. They were life-giving waters to drink. Let me know when you're working outside and you're hot and you're sweaty and you're tired and you want a Gatorade, you'd really like one that comes out of the refrigerator, you know, that's cold. So what Jesus is saying, I want you to be life-giving, hot or cold. He's not saying one's good or bad. He's saying what's bad is when it's in the middle. Now, stay with me as we try to interpret and figure this out. Verse 17, Jesus said, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I don't need anything, and you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus said, those whom I love, what do I do? I reprove and discipline, so you be zealous and repent. Now, I highly encourage you to get a good study Bible. I read my Bible every day. Right now I'm reading the ESV. It's a good study Bible. If you want one that's easier to read, get the New Living Translation. But get a study Bible because here's some things that you'll learn about this. Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was so wealthy that when an earthquake destroyed it in, 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 the, in the biblical era, they didn't even need to ask the, Rome, the city of Rome to give them money to help rebuild. They were rich people. And listen to this now. The Christians there were rich too. They were wealthy people. And here's where the problem came in. They wrongly assumed that because they were wealthy that they were right with God. Now stay with me. You remember, you say I'm rich, I'm prospered, I don't need anything, and the idea was is that God is blessing and favor me. It's a sign of His approval and they didn't realize their spiritual poverty. Now this word lukewarm, here's where I'm going to focus and then I'll close. Lukewarm definition means they were indifferent, they were ineffective and impotent as a Christian witness. This is not the condition of their heart, their backsliddenness. They were an ineffective Christian witness. You remember what I told you earlier is that each of the churches that Jesus spoke to, He said something about Himself? Well, to the church in Laodicea, Jesus said, I am the faithful and true witness. And guess what? They weren't. 
They were lukewarm witnesses for Christ. They were indifferent. They were, they were, they were uh, 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 having no effect on the people in their city. Their witness for Christ was, was, was useless. Uh, they never offended anyone. Uh, they never stirred any hostility because of their Christian stand. And the lesson for here, us is very clear. Can, we cannot conform to a godless culture. We cannot be intimidated by their threats. Here's the picture here. They're living in a wealthy city. Now, if you know anything about business, there's a lot of, you know, uh, we call it corruption. We call it cronyism in politics. But it's basically this. Listen, I'll give you $50,000, but you need to give me the contract. I'll give you a million dollars in your campaign or your foundation, but I expect you to do this when push comes to shove. And deals were cut and they were made that way. Well, how many know if you become a Christian... This is true around the world now. It's just commonplace. If you become a Christian and you're convicted that you're no longer going to give the bribe, come on, to make the deal, to lie the cover up, to let it go on, and then all of a sudden they'll cut you off. So what was happening in this city, the Christians were just kind of drawn back because they were in the routine of life and they were making money and they were prospering and they didn't want to rock the boat. Can I tell you, friends, that's the pressure of our culture today. And they're saying, Christians, don't rock the boat. You keep your mouth shut. Any disagreement is hatred. You know, you know how it goes. But my friends, I want to encourage you. There, what they were corrected for is they had become an ineffective, useless witness for Christ. And their pressure, or the, the, the culture was pressuring them. You remember the movie, God's Not Dead? I'd show you a clip, but we don't have time this morning. I, I've seen both of them. But the first one was my favorite. And you remember when that teacher in that classroom, was, he was a philosophy teacher, and he was basically saying, we're going to just go ahead and just make everything clear from the beginning so we don't have to talk about God. Let's just all agree up front, all you freshmen, what every sophomore already knows, and that is there is no God. So I just want you to write on a sheet of paper, God is dead. And you know how the movie went. 99 of the students did it, but one student would not do it because this student stood up. I guarantee you, many were raised in youth groups, were raised in church, but guess what? They were lukewarm. Yeah. Yeah. They refused to stand up for Christ in the midst of culture. I'm not talking about going out and looking for a fight. I'm not, I'm not talking about insulting people. As I said earlier, we want to be respectful to everyone, but we want to speak the truth in love. We want to be salt and we want to be light in a culture that has lost its way. Because lest we forget, everybody is going to heaven or hell, you know, sooner or later. And you and I are God's mouthpiece. When we leave this church, the, the, the reason, listen, uh, Pastor Stephen preaches and studies is to equip you so you can go out into the world to be an effective witness for Christ. And that's what they've done at Laodicea. They had forgotten their responsibility to be salt and light in the world. And Jesus said, I'll spit you out of my mouth just like lukewarm water. Come on, somebody say, praise the Lord. Thanks for listening. To see what's happening at the house, follow us on social media at the house underscore NWA.